This message is brought to you by DoNotAge.org, the longevity research organisation that's on a mission to extend health span for as many people as possible via products that actually work. Start your journey today at DoNotAge.org and use code LAMA for a 10% discount. That's L-L-A-M-A. Hello and welcome to the Llama Podcast. I'm Peter Bowes and Llama, Live Long and Master Aging, is where we explore the science and stories behind human longevity. It's often said that some people achieve a great age in part because of their attitude or mindset. But how does that work? If we believe that we can or are simply determined to enjoy a long, healthy life, does that necessarily mean we will? Well, Aliyah Crum is an assistant professor of psychology at Stanford University and director of the Mind and Body Lab there. She investigates the role mindset plays in our health and lifestyle choices and whether in some way we could embrace the power of mindset to live healthier lives. We sat down together at the most recent TED Med conference in La Quinta, California. Aliyah Crum, welcome to the Lama Podcast. Thank you for having me. So, what is mindset? Mm, good question. Mindset is quite literally a setting of the mind. It's a lens or frame of mind through which we view and perceive the world. So, at any given moment, the amount of potential information to take in is unwieldy. Uh, so we need simplifying systems, lenses, or frames through which we can organize and make sense of that world. And how did you become interested? I became interested in mindset, I guess it started as a, as a child. I grew up in a very interesting household. My father taught transcendental meditation and Aikido. My mother wrote and directed children's plays. And I experienced, uh, I grew up in the town of Aspen, where people came to study sort of mind-body arts. And I kind of was immersed in this environment where we could see people's lives, their happiness, their health changed by focused, deliberate attention on their minds, on what they were thinking. And, you know, I kind of was immersed in that, but I didn't realize that that was unusual until, you know, I moved out of that area. And people were like, wow, what are you talking, Mindfulness? And I studied with a professor, Ellen Langer, at Harvard, who does work on a more Western flavor of mindfulness. Uh, so not just, you know, sitting in a room alone, but questioning the world. So why is it that hypertension is above 140, you know? Why is it that we're doing, we view stress so negatively? Why is it that we think, you know, chronic disease is something to fear? Uh, and so she had this more inquisitive flavor of, of mindfulness. And the other uh, STEM you know, inspiration was through Carol Dweck, whose work on mindset really inspired me. She does work on mindset about intelligence. Uh, so do you view intelligence as something that's fixed or something that's malleable? And what she finds is that the mindsets that we choose are not inconsequential, right? If you view intelligence as malleable, you're more likely to um, persist after setbacks. You're more likely to find a love and joy for learning, and people ultimately are more successful in their lives. So, you know, that's mindset about intelligence, but it occurred to me there, you know, are mindsets about everything, and, and how, do they, how do they matter? And mindset, is it the same as state of mind? I'm not sure what you would mean by state of mind. 
a lot of people say state of mind is sort of like the, the emotions that you're experiencing. Mindsets are more cognitive. They're usually associations like stress is good or, you know, stress is enhancing or this treatment will work or this treatment is risky or I'll never learn to play the piano or I can get better with time. These are, you know, simple sort of cognitive associations, lenses or frames of mind through which you view the world. So for someone pursuing and thinking about their own longevity, their own lifespan or health span and the aging process, which I think to some extent is a mindset issue. I mean, clearly there are practical physical issues associated with that diet and, and exercise and the way that we live our lives generally. But is it important, is it indeed vital to have the correct mindset? Yeah, well, I balk at the term correct. Uh, I thought you might. <laughs> yeah. As I said it, I thought that's not the right word. But However, there are more and less useful mindsets to have in any given situation. And when it comes to aging, uh, I'll get into that in a second, but let me just share quickly, um, you know, the third sort of source of inspiration was through placebo effects. So what placebo effects demonstrate is... The Actually, in- first of all, define yeah. what the placebo effect is. Sure. Yeah. So, well, strangely, the placebo effect is designed as an, an effect that occurs from a a substance that has no effect, (laughs) which is just ironic, right? Essentially, placebo effects are the response that occurs when a patient is under the impression that they're getting a treatment or a medication, but in fact, the treatment has no active pharmaceutical substance or there's no surgery going on. So So it's a fake or a faux treatment. Yeah, if it was an injection, it could be a saline solution, it it could be nothing, exactly, or it could be a chemical, exactly. but the patient doesn't know. Right, the patient. So what we find is that, you know, it's extraordinarily hard to get a drug passed through a clinical trial process. Oftentimes this isn't because the drugs don't work, but it's it's extremely hard to show that they work better than a placebo. What does that mean? Do they work better than somebody just believing that they're getting the treatment when in fact they've they've gotten nothing at all? So I've been fascinated by placebo effects because they we've known about them from for centuries, and the medical uh, system endorses them in such a way that every time we pass a drug through this clinical trial process, it has to outperform the placebo. But then we kind of forget about it, right? We don't realize what it really is, which is it's not the effect of nothing, right? It's the effect of our beliefs in the treatment. It's the effect of the treatment that we're getting from the doctor through their bedside manner, through their medical ritual. Uh, Those things don't just make us say we feel better, but can actually produce specific neurobiological effects. So if you believe that you're getting a pain medication, your brain releases endogenous opiates, the body's natural pain relievers. If you believe you're getting an anti-anxiety medication, your parasympathetic uh, nervous system ramps up. That's your rest and digest system. So we've also seen this in outside of the medical world in behavioral health. So your beliefs about what you eat can change your body's response to what you eat. So we gave people the same exact milk milkshake, but told them it was either a low-fat, low-calorie shake or a high-fat, high-calorie shake. And when they thought it was caloric, their bodies responded as if it was more caloric. So back to the question of aging, 
Uh, as you might imagine, we think that there's certainly an effect of our mindsets about aging. Now, I haven't done this work, but Becca, Becca Levy, who's a professor at Yale University, has done a lot of really important work uh, exploring this question. So what she's shown is that, you know, in various cultures differ, but in the U.S. in particular and in more Western cultures, we have a pretty negative view of aging. Right, So we have this kind of, you know, and, and when do we get it? We get it when we're not old, right? We get it when we're young and we see, you know, people getting old and losing mobility and losing their minds. And we have this kind of view that aging is an inevitable decline. The problem with that mindset is that we will all grow old, right? So you create these stereotypes of what it means to age. By and large, they're negative. And then we inevitably become old, right? So we're in some way self-stereotyping ourselves. And what she's shown is that those mindsets, like uh, these other places, aren't irrelevant. So people who have more positive mindsets of aging, viewing aging as you know, a process to, towards um, gaining greater wisdom, a uh, deeper sense of connection, a deeper appreciation for what it's like to be human. Or perhaps uh, those people who don't necessarily consider aging to be equal to frailty or disability or mental decline, and that you can have a positive attitude about it, that you could still be very old and still have all of those faculties. And very vital and perhaps even more vital than you've ever been. So what she's found is that when people have that, that exact mindset that you're describing, their risk of dying is less. So mortality rates are lower. And there's a reason for this. There's a couple you know, proposed mechanisms. One is they just have more of a will to live as you get older, right? Another is they're more likely to engage in health-promoting behaviors. So what this is showing is that, and, and also when you prime people with these kind of negative associations with aging or the positive ones, those have an immediate effect on your cardiovascular health. Uh, they also have an effect on how quickly you'll walk to the elevator after seeing those associations. Or even take the stairs. Or, yeah, or maybe you choose to take a stairs. So you can see that the mindsets that we choose are not irrelevant. They create self-fulfilling prophecies. So if you believe that aging is an inevitable decline, you start noticing things that reinforce that belief. Your motivation is to, eh, it's not worth it, right? Your physiology changes, and your affect changes. It, it feels crappy, right? You're more you know? inclined to give up. Exactly. So through these you know, changes in attention and physiology and motivation and affect, we create the reality that we set out for ourselves through that, that mindset. In aging, the cultural mindset is very, very strong. So how can we use this knowledge and, uh, and this science-based research to help us, those of us who are inclined to be positive about aging? How can we embrace this knowledge? Yeah, I think the first step is recognizing that our mindsets matter, that we tend to assume that the things we believe are a reflection of the reality that is. So we think, well, of course I think that, you know, aging is an inevitable decline because I see it, right? Because that's what, what is, right? And we forget that, or we don't fully realize that our mindsets aren't just a reflection of the reality, but they create the reality. So when we start to get that, 
we have more freedom in our choices. We might then say, hey, I'm, I'm not going to think that way anymore. I'm going to focus and look at all the amazing people in my life who are old, right? The people who are models of vitality well into their 90s. That's what I'm going to focus on, right? Ultimately, it's a choice. And that's the beauty of mindset is we can choose. And is it possible to quantify from your research and the research of, of others to what extent a positive mindset can affect us? But clearly, it's a combination of, of factors as we grow older. Mindset is one, and as you've illustrated, important factor. But then there's the practicality of actually doing the exercise and not just thinking about it and of eating the right diet and, and moving forward in a, a quantified way that will achieve that longevity. So to what extent is mindset important? Is it 10% or is hmm. it 9% or are we all different? Yeah. Yeah, so don't get me wrong. I'm not suggesting that if we just, you know, believe that we'll live forever, we will, right? There are objective forces. That's what went through my mind. <laughs> there are objective forces. Um, so certainly, you know, there's a, a natural process that happens when we age. There's a natural process that happens when we eat or when we have stress. But what we, what I am trying to say is that we don't yet know where those limits are, right? So we don't actually know how powerful our mindset can be. We're testing this, right? But even then, you know, it's, you know, there's always ways to make the mindset even stronger, right? So... I think that the optimal state to be in is one in which you're not denying death, right? You're not denying that we grow old. You're seeing it for what it is and recognizing that we have choices within that to change the way we're viewing it. And what's ironic is that when we actually accept death and accept aging and choose to view the beauty in it, that's motivating, right? We don't have to then force ourselves to do these things. It's like, oh, great, I want to go out and do all the, you know, the things in life that make me more vital. So what on a, a daily basis, let's say we don't fully understand the science yet, but what on a daily basis can we do to make sure that we're in the best mindset possible to have that good day and maybe a good mm -hmm. week and a, a, ultimately a good long life? What can <laughs> we do to, we all start off some days they're not great. Something goes wrong. Yeah. The dog's misbehaving. The children are playing up. And it, it, it isn't great for a moment. But what can we do practically to put ourselves in that positive mindset? Yeah. Again, I, I worry about the, you know, what's the best mindset question. The question is, what is our mindset? Right? That's where it starts. Right? What, how am I viewing the world today? Right? And just that little bit of awareness can relinquish you from being kind of totally reactive, right? We can choose, right? Okay, I'm feeling stressed today because I'm giving a presentation or having a important interview. Well, why am I feeling that way, right? I'm stressed because ultimately there's something I care about here. Ah, well, then it makes sense, right? Maybe then I want to embrace that stress, right? So I think that it's more just you know, asking ourselves the question, what, what is the mindset that I'm in right now? And how is that affecting my life? And is that, are those the effects that I'd like to see? Or might I want to kind of reverse engineer a more useful mindset? I'm interested in your, your use of language or indeed your correction of my use of, of language and not say best mindset. Is it therefore more accurate perhaps to talk about a more positive 
mindset or negative mindset? Yeah, no, actually, because I I think that there's been a, you know, ever since Norman Vincent Peale's, you know, Power of Positive Thinking, I think there's this misinterpretation of optimism and mindset as being just, oh, you just need to view everything as rosy, right? You just need to think positively. And, and, you know, there's lots of benefits to positive thinking, but what we're finding in the research is that the effects of mindset are more specific. So it's not, you know, I do a lot of work on stress and the mindset is that we think is most useful. It's not stress is good, right? Because Stress isn't good, you know, a death of somebody in the family or a major health concern or a loss of a job. or po- These are not good things. The more useful mindset is stress is enhancing, right, which is different. That says the experience of going through a loss in the family or a you know, loss of a job can have, you know, provide the fuel through which we can attain a greater sense of growth and understanding and resilience. Or to deal with a similar situation again the next time something equivalently stressful happens. Exactly. All, you know, if you look back in your life and think about times where you've learned the most or grew the most, I would venture to guess that all of those involve some stress. Right. So it's just it's just part of the process. So the mindset research is, you know, I think it's misinterpreted when it's seen as, oh, just get the most positive or the right mindset. It's every mindset has effects, usually ones that are self-fulfilling. So let's be more mindful of those mindsets. I'm curious to know in your daily life, as you look at your think about perhaps your longevity, first of all, do you think about it? We don't all. I, I hesitate to say obsess about it, but I think about it a lot because I'm fascinated about the process. But is it something that you pay attention to? Yes, I do. I, th- I think about it a lot. I, Hazel Marcus has done some really interesting work on what she calls uh, possible selves. And she's shown that a lot of what we're driven by are not just kind of, you know, our self-esteem now, but our visions of what could be possible for us. And so I am fascinated by that, by how what I kind of visualize or see for myself in the future is affecting me in the current. And I have lots of positive role models uh, that I've been exposed to in my life. My great-great-aunt was 95 when she died. She was uh, she started the gift shop at the Boston Ballet, and she to till the day she died, she took the, the subway into work and watched every single performance of every ballet. I mean, she was just captivated. So she's an inspiration to me. And up until the age of 95. Up until the age of 95. And so I think there's, you know, there's hope in that, you know. And I, and I also am not afraid of dying. I, you know, if it turns out that I, you know, have a, a death-inducing disease, then that's okay too, right? And I think there's freedom in that. I think there's freedom in knowing that no matter what's in store for me, I have the capacity to choose my reaction to that and to embrace it in a way that's that's meaningful. And your great-great-aunt, did she talk about her great age and did she express any opinions as to why she had managed to survive so long? She said 
you know, she didn't really, which I, I find interesting. She wasn't so caught up in it. You know, I think you hear a lot, you know, even, you know, people in their 40s are like, oh, well, I'm, I'm getting old. You know, people in their 30s, it's like, oh, well, now this is because I'm old. You know, and it's, it's an obsession, right? And I think that was perhaps what was most remarkable of all was that she didn't weigh herself down by those thoughts. She just was who she was and did the best she could do every day and engaged with the world in the way she could and the way she wanted to. So perhaps there is a lesson in that for all of us that you you don't obsess about these things and you just life just goes on and you just embrace it and make the best of what for her clearly was a very good and, and healthy and long life. Yes. And not, you know, obsessing also means not denying it, you know, so it's kind of just it's there, but you know, we focus on the things that we value, the things that we want to do. We don't need to be distracted. In terms of, of mindset, a lot of people talk these days about daily rituals and daily routines that in a very positive sense that uh, certainly successful people talk about their morning meditation routine and putting the phone away and those aspects of our lives that create stress. How significant do you think they are in terms of mindset? Thinking about how you, on a daily basis, conduct your life. Hmm. I'm a mindset researcher, so I think their effects of the rituals that we're choosing in, in large part depends on our mindset about those rituals, right? So if we believe that meditation is the best thing for us and we do it, then it's going to have those effects. But the, the catch with that is if you believe that I need to have my meditation and then I need to have my yoga and then I need to have my you know, flaxseed yogurt and you don't, you miss it one day, then all of a sudden we're caught up on this you know, horrible day, horrible mindset. And so we also need to recognize that the practices that we create were created, right? And we can be, we can be flexible to change and adapt. But I do think some structure can help us create you know situations in which our our mindsets are are shaped most adaptively so a lot of this is potentially counterintuitive that we might do things that we think are because we're almost conditioned like that to think it's it's a negative and if we don't do these things as you say that that can build up stress which is unnecessary yeah i think a lot of what we're doing is well-intentioned, you know, think about public health messages, you know, stress will kill you, or if you eat high-fat foods, you're going to have a heart attack, or if you don't get enough exercise, you're going to become overweight and have chronic diseases. These are all intended to motivate us. They're intended to motivate us to go out and eat better and to not stress so much and to exercise more. The, the problem is that we often don't actually change our behaviors. So now we're not motivated. We haven't changed our behaviors. And we've, had, we've been kind of embedded with this mindset that what I'm doing currently isn't enough, that I'm going to get sick, that I'm going to get a chronic disease. And so we need to be really, I think, more thoughtful in how we go about you know, just giving people these messages about the things they should do in their lives because... The ultimate goal is, is, you know, not to change behavior. It's to improve health and happiness. And if we're not recognizing how those messages shape our mindset, we're missing a, a whole piece and we might be causing unnecessary suffering. Mm, interesting. As you move forward with your research, what's the next step? The next step is to start to, well, 
more thoroughly understand the question that you asked, which is how, how much does mindset matter, uh, you know, in, in various domains, because it is different. How much does it matter in shaping the effects of diet, exercise, stress, aging, but also in medicine? Uh, we know that it matters a lot in treatment for anxiety, depression, pain, cardiovascular disease, irritable bowel syndrome. We don't know how much it matters in cancer and other diseases, but we, we do think that it matters. So putting the science behind that, understanding what is the role of mindset, uh, what are the consequences, what are the, you know, the mechanisms, that's a major piece of what we're doing, but we're also, you know, the ultimate question is not just do mindsets have an effect, but what can we do as people or as healthcare providers to consciously and deliberately harness our mindsets? So we're, we're doing a fair amount of work trying to understand how can we change mindsets consciously and deliberately, you know, when you wake up in the morning? How can you do it in the midst of real fear or real stress it can be it can be quite challenging to do it then so that's the major frontier and i imagine crucial to your research is data and big data how do you gather that information uh we do a variety of different things i do experimental research uh, so we have a lab that's uh, actually it's a, a doctor's office uh, we call it our doctor's office because we run a lot of different studies in there uh, where we can vary the things that the doctor is saying, the way that the doctor is acting. We can vary the social cues. And we do other lab experiments, like I mentioned, with, with the milkshakes, right, where we give people the exact same milkshake, different labels can measure their gut peptides, their ghrelin. So we have a variety of different experimental studies where we alter or manipulate different mindsets and test the effects. But we're also looking at more realistic settings. So we're doing some work with Stanford's primary care offices, looking at what interventions can we do to shape the mindset of the patient and the provider to more effectively tap into the power of mindset and the social context in their practice. And then last, we're also uh, venturing into the very big world of health tech and starting to understand how we can use these devices to not just give us massive amounts of data, which is helpful, but also understand how that data shapes our mindsets and the ways in which we can change the interface to make them more useful. And in terms of tech, and you made me instantly think of my mobile phone, which is the tech that we all have with us all of the time. What applications do you see for this kind of technology to positively embrace what we know about mindset? I think we've yet to see them. I, I think there are some really interesting things in the pipeline uh, that capture health data from these devices. And I don't actually think these devices have effectively learned how to understand mindset and to capture that. So I'm working with some people at Stanford, James Landay, on this question. Uh, but the truth is, I don't think we have those those mm. apps just yeah. yet. Yeah. What I was wondering was, I mean, clearly there is technology that is intelligent technology. I'm thinking of mapping technology that there's an intelligence to know that at 6.30 every Saturday morning you go to the gym and your phone is telling you already how long it's going to take to get there because it's understanding that that's what you do every Saturday morning. So I wonder if there's going to come a time when your phone can almost predict your mindset. Mm. That would be fascinating. I, <laughs> I, too far ahead, I'm skeptical. I, I, you know, I think it's it's tricky because mindset is so much about meaning and interpretation. 
it can't be reduced to a electrical impulse. Mm, yeah. Uh, so well, I maybe think, that's a good thing. I think it's a good thing, but I think what we need is that more of an interaction between the technology and the kind of perspective, the more less tangible things that that we as human can enter as data into the device, but that won't necessarily pick up through the molecules or the electrodes. And just a, a final question. I mean, your research is totally fascinating, groundbreaking in, in so many senses. I'm just wondering from everything that you have learned, uh, in terms of people talk about the light bulb going off, that, that moment when you realize something, and you've actually taught me a lot in the last 30 minutes or so, but was there a moment for you when you thought, wow, yes, I really get it? Yes. Remember the milkshakes that I talked about? I had gone into that study thinking, you know, having seen so much data on placebo response, that I did expect and predict that our bodies would respond differently to uh, impressions of what we were drinking. What shocked me was that the effect was counter to what I had expected. So I had expected that believing that you were eating healthy, uh, you know, a low-fat, low-calorie shake would be the best mindset to have, much like the, you know, positive, oh, I'll just think, you know, I'll just eat, think that I'm eating healthy. And what we found was that it was the exact opposite. In fact, the more useful mindset to have in that case was a mindset that you're eating indulgently. Why? Because your body responded as if you had had more calories. Ghrelin levels drop, which signals to the brain, you know, you can stop eating. It revs up metabolism. So what got me there was, you know, what I, what I think I've been saying throughout this interview is that the specificity of mindset, right? That it's the indulgent mindset produces an indulgent response. And the more, the major point in that though was we're going about things so wrong in many cases, right? As a, you know, female, somebody, I was an athlete, always trying to, you know, maintain my weight, trying to, oh, I need to eat healthy, I need to eat light and fit, I need to eat low fat, you know? And yet what we're doing when we're doing that is putting ourselves into a mindset that is counteracting all the good work that we're doing. So that was, you know, I've done a lot of studies and been, you know, inspired by a lot of things. On a personal level, that was the one that really changed my life the most. Aaliyah Crum, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. And that's it for this episode. The Llama Podcast is a Right Angles production. You can contact us through our website at llamapodcast.com. And I am very keen to hear from you, your thoughts on the interviews and suggestions for people we could speak to in future episodes. You can follow us and leave messages on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter at Llama Podcast. FlexBeam is a portable red light therapy device that's now being used by leading athletes, including the Norwegian tennis player Kasper Rude. Whenever you put the FlexBeam on, you feel it starts to work right away. I need something that can help repair all the fibres that I have broken in the surfs. The infrared lights penetrate your skin and makes the muscle tissue recover faster. FlexBeam, I keep it with me all the time. Recharge Health is offering Llama Podcast listeners an $80 discount on the purchase of a FlexBeam device. Go to the website recharge.health and use the code LLAMA at checkout. That's L-L-A-M-A. You'll also find the link in the show notes 
for this episode.